0: Welcome from the headquarters of the Northern Rangelands Trust here at the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy in Kenya, a beautiful and inspirational setting for this week's Convex Conversation. The Tusk Conservation Awards were established in 2013 in partnership with 91, an active investment manager that aims to make a positive change. Each year, nominees and winners from Africa come to the UK to be recognised, celebrated and appreciated for dedicating their lives to protecting endangered species, the habitat they rely on and helping local communities to protect Africa's irreplaceable natural assets. This year, Tusk along with 91 who have brought me out to this breathtaking part of the world are planning an extra special 10th anniversary ceremony in November. In 2016, Sir David Attenborough accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award from the charity's Royal Patron, His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge, for protecting our wildlife and natural world.
1: Africa is the front line of conservation. Africa people are getting killed in the name of conservation. It's hard, it's tough. And the people who do it, who are represented here tonight, are true heroes and heroines.
0: So it feels timely to meet one of those heroes from the front line, the first ever winner of the Tusk Award for Conservation in Africa. Tom Lalampa earned the Tusk accolade for his tireless work brokering peace amongst feuding tribal groups here in northern Kenya, helping them understand the importance of coexisting with the wildlife. Tom and his team here at the Northern Rangelands Trust, of which he's CEO, have been key to creating a conservation area of three million acres, benefiting more than 150,000 local people and bridging the gap between conservation and improved indigenous livelihoods. Tom, thank you so much for inviting me to the heart of operations here at the Trust on what, as you know, is my first visit to your beautiful country. It's taken my breath away, to be honest. Tell me a bit about Kenya. How special is it to you?
1: Kenya is a very interesting country in Africa, and I think it's only a country in in the world where 65% of the wildlife are hosted by local communities in their own land, all free-ranging, which is quite interesting. And so in Kenya, we're investing through the conservancy model to ensure that coexistence between people and wildlife, while at the same time ensuring that Communities benefit from wildlife, and through that coexistence, they're able to support each other. The legislation in this country is quite progressive. They recognize communities conserving wildlife and protecting nature, which is just amazing, really. Under the Northern Regional Trust, we currently support that 43 community conservancies across 10 counties in Kenya. And it's amazing, really. I come from a very strong pastoralist background. My family keeps cattle, livestock, and we exist with wildlife in the ranges.
0: I want to hear more about your upbringing and your background and also the community conservatives in a moment. But 10 years ago, you stood on stage in London, Tom, in striking tribal dress and received your Tusk Award from Prince William, along with a financial grant as well. Take me back, what was that moment like?
1: Ah, it was breathtaking. It was such a moment. It's still very fresh in my mind. It was amazing. I travelled with my wife. My wife was on the plane for the first time in her life. That's amazing. I travelled to London. It was amazing.
0: First Tusk Conservation Award in Africa. I'm thrilled to announce that the winner is Tom Lalapama.
1: I feel incredibly uh, humbled to have been chosen for this award. It's an honor and a privilege. It wasn't in my wildest dreams that I could be recognized for the work I'm doing on the ground with our local communities, uh, brokering peace through conservation. And it was such an inspiration to be at that that stage. And first and foremost, uh, meet with Prince William, something I didn't imagine. It really inspired me. It really motivated me. And so it was such a moment in life to get to that stage and check hands with Prince William. That was wow
0: for me. I'm sure it was really wow. And we've mentioned a couple of times about you brokering peace. Tell me a bit about the peace that you were brokering. What were the tribal groups feuding over? And how did you manage to bring peace and explain to them the benefits of living in harmony with with the wildlife and the habitat?
1: Northern Kenya in particular is known for insecurity. It's ethnic in nature, Uh, different tribes fight over water. Some of them fight over grass, uh, limited resources. And so when it gets very dry, like right now in Northern Kenya, the communities really struggle for the little water and the little grass left on the land for their livestock. And so often they do clash And they do fight. They do kill each other. There is also a lot of illegal firearms in the hands of civilians in northern Kenya just because of our porous borders. And so lots of illegal guns are in the hands of local youth. And these guns play into the conflict. And so we're using the conservancy model to bring these communities together. Uh, We have brought 18 different ethnic groups together coexists and they, they are all connected on a radio system so that in case any conflict arises you will hear it instantly and we can all try to help uh, through the conservancy model we've developed what we call peace ambassadors program largely led by women from all these ethnic communities and they become the ears uh, on the ground they tell us exactly what's ca- what's coming up we communicate with the government We communicate with the rest of the stakeholders and we're able to address situations before they get out of hand and through that we're able to minimize retaliations that could lead to loss of life or people killing each other and so through the model um, the conservancy there's now constant dialogue on issues to do about grazing, sharing water tackling any conflicts that that emerges and so there's now that communication we're trying to strengthen that dialogue to build a trust so that each tribe you know, can trust the other. And we're using women. Women are playing a key role right now. And we've got a very strong peace program to ensure that there's a strong dialogue. And in case of anything, we use a multi-ethnic approach where we bring all these ethnicities together. Elders from different tribes come together. And we deploy them to go and talk to the youth so that they don't conflict, they don't fight. And that has been such a success in northern Kenya.
0: And what was the attitude from communities when you first went in and, and tried to broker this piece? Were they very receptive to learning how to share resources and indeed to appreciate the wildlife more? Because I think they were quite apathetic, weren't they, at one stage about the wildlife?
1: At the beginning, there was a lot of mistrust between these communities. They don't trust each other. They are suspicious of each other. Of course, they come from different religious backgrounds as well. Some of them have a culture that glorify conflict like the Samburu. And so at the beginning, when we were were starting, there was a lot of mistrust and they they have to watch you. They have to listen to you, whether how genuine you are. And as an organization, we have remained neutral within our communities so that we can dialogue with them. And so it took time really for us to build that level of confidence and build a trust so that we become a trusted pair of hands for these communities. And the other thing we have also tried to do is all the time ensuring that we employ people or staff from these ethnic communities. And so when every community sees their staff, their sons and daughters uh, from Northern Kenya, working in these conservancies, working with Northern Regiland Trust, they feel that they, they have one of their own within the organization. And so it took a lot of time. We do a lot of sports for peace, where we bring the youth from the wearing communities to run and the winner gets a cow because they love cows and, and they love it. And, you know, they, they do traditional dances together. We ensure that they are able to exchange phone numbers so that they're able to talk to each other. And so it took a lot of time really to build that level of confidence, the trust to each other. Initially, they couldn't mix. They couldn't sit together in a meeting. You know, uh, meetings here are held under trees, and so they stay apart from each other. So someone has to come to the middle and gently just talk to them until they're able to mix and talk to each other. So it's been such a process, very patient. We've been very patient, going slowly, with back and forth occasionally. But the reality is that NRT is a trusted partner. It's a trusted uh, organization, which was actually formed by them. The Northern Regional Trust was formed by local communities. And so we remain truthful to that. And we're very glad that we're able to really help. We've tried to use different tools. we got softwares just to document all instances and be in a position to identify the hotspots for these conflicts. And we do mapping of these hotspots or conflict zones so that we're able to tackle and could even go further to identify which months of the year certain conflicts arise or certain Hotspots arise, and we can even tell which ethnicity is more aggressive than the other. And so it's been a process, a lengthy process, of just being patient, and listening to our communities, and until they're able to volunteer information to you.
0: It must be very rewarding to take a look back, which I'm guessing you don't do very often, to sit back in that chair, yours and think about how the landscape's really changed, certainly over the last 10 to, to 20 years. You've made a massive contribution to that for which you received the Tusk Award, which was fantastic. And what about the the wildlife in the conservancy? Have you had to win hearts and minds in terms of wildlife? Because of course, when people are are growing crops and growing their food, sometimes elephants aren't seen the way I would see an elephant. They may be a pest if they breaking down fences or eating food or other wildlife. Have you had to win hearts and minds on that front too?
1: Northern Kenya landscape is largely livestock and wildlife in terms of economy because it's very dry. The reality is that Northern Kenya communities also utilize wildlife. They utilize certain species, be it a skin, for ceremonies. They utilize elephant dung for certain ceremonies. When a a girl is married, an elephant dung is very important. When they build the first house, Samburu and the Maasai warriors, when they do certain ceremonies, they require the skin of a lion. And during even wedding, the, the groom uh, puts on the skin of a lion, tying on the leg. So when you look at the culture, the culture is really very, it detects a lot to do with wildlife in itself. The reality is that uh, a potion has been very ripe uh, previously, like 2012. 2012, we were losing up to about 132 elephants here in the north and almost all to Pushing, actually. But that has really come down right now to the extent that last year we didn't lose elephants. And just because it has taken a lot of efforts to create awareness, also through the government, working very closely with the Kenya Wildlife Service, creating awareness for communities, and also ensuring that the communities see benefits from this wildlife. Conservation for us here is more about people, linked to people. You know, you have to touch people's hearts, you know. Um, you, we're investing a lot in improving the livelihoods of these local communities. There are a lot of scholarships coming up, a lot of uh, health facilities coming up. There are a lot of jobs being created. There's a lot of water projects for communities going on right now. There's a lot of health facilities coming up as well. And tourism is also really now getting to northern Kenya. So when the community see the benefits, they relate it to wildlife and they start appreciating and opening up those wildlife corridors as well.
0: But um, Tom, when those traditions, you talked about elephant tongue and the skin of a lion, when those traditions have, have been going for so many decades, so many years, is that a hard sell to explain to the communities why you much prefer they didn't go down that route anymore?
1: It's very interesting because when we talk to these communities on matters to do with wildlife, protecting and coexisting with this wildlife, they connect with their cultures. Almost all the time say we need to see elephants here because we need a dung at the end of the day. And currently we've asked them not to kill lions, but instead we approach the wildlife authority to give us any skins within their stores that might have emanated from either conflict in other areas. And so that's, those schemes are given to the local communities for those ceremonial purposes. And so that also really builds that relationship. So instead of going to kill, now you request anyone with a skin of a lion, whether it's a wildlife authority, they will give you so that they, they, you, you use for your cultural um, and then hand over to another person. And so it takes time to create awareness. We use different approaches in terms of creating awareness for the importance of coexistence. And the reality is that now in Northern Kenya, they are really conserving some of the most endangered species. We got the only black rhino sanctuary in Northern Kenya and it's been very well. You know, they, we introduced in 2015, we put in 10 individuals. And in six years time, they've doubled to 20. The Hirola antelope down in Garissa, there are probably about 400 individuals left in the world. And they're found there. the community is taking care of them and they've done a breeding sanctuary, and now they're rewilding. When you look at the elephant rescue center, the only one in Africa run by communities, in one of the conservancies here in the north, so baby elephants, calves, fall into the deep water holes during dry season, and they're abandoned, or, you know, their mothers die, and so they're rescued by communities, and they're being now taken care of by local communities. The Rothschild giraffes are now doing very well in some of the local communities. And it's all free-ranging, and the communities are taking care of them. They, they're accommodating them, they're hosting them in their own land. It's just becoming a, such a successful story to see population of grave zebras now improving in numbers. Some of them are stabilizing right now. And so it takes time, it takes patience, but it takes also time to win the hearts of the communities.
0: Tell me a bit about you, your Samburu tribe, and what life was like for you as a young boy?
1: I'm born of a Samburu tribe, pastoralist community. My late father was married to three wives, and my mum was the first wife. We grew up looking after livestock. I was the first to get an opportunity to go to school, and my elder brother declined to go to school. My parents paid for my education by selling cattle, selling livestock to educate me. During holidays, I came back home stay with my parents over the holiday, I look after cows, I look after goats. And occasionally I could lose some few you know, to wildlife, to cats, to lions, to leopards. And sometimes I get beaten up by my, by my father, uh, losing out um, yeah, livestock to cats. Oh. Uh, particularly that was very stubborn in our area. <laughs> and that has been our life, you know. Occasionally we could lose livestock because of droughts. You know, life just continued, but uh, I, sc- I was schooling in boarding schools all my life because my parents are nomadic. And so when you break for holidays, when you try and go and look for them where you left them, they're not there anymore. They have moved and they don't even tell you where they've, where they've, where they've oh, gone. Oh
0: my goodness. How on earth did you find them if they'd moved without telling you? So
1: you have to talk to other families. You have to inquire from people where your parents have moved to. I probably take you about two, three days to walk and find them.
0: It's just such a different world, Tom, to to where I come from. So it's fascinating to hear these stories. And now it's kind of making sense to me if your father had three wives because you were the second of 17 children. So I was imagining some poor lady having 17 children and I've got two and that's enough. <laughs> so he was married to three wives at the same time. That, that was acceptable yeah. within the Samburu tribe. And I gather that you're not sure exactly of your age other than that you were born during an eclipse because don't the Samburu tribe associate births with major events?
1: It's very interesting because uh, in Africa, among us, most of the pastoralist communities like Samburu, a man can marry as many wives as he can, as long as he has the livestock. I have an uncle who is married to eight eight women.
0: Eight women?
1: And he's got about 47, 48 children. And that's life, really. As long as you have livestock, you can afford to pay the dowry. The dowry is about it's about 10 cows. Uh, How
0: many cows would I get like for me, do you think? Ten?
1: Uh, it's unacceptable.
0: <laughs> Ten <is> acceptable. <laughs> Ten is acceptable.
1: So the reality and the truth is just not me alone. Most of the pastoralist children, they don't know when they were born because our parents didn't go to school. They don't keep any record. They don't have a birth certificate so that they can see. And so typically, you are told that you are born during a certain season. It can be during a famous eclipse of the sun. It can be during a drought. It can be when there was a certain war. In that landscape, you can be told it was during either rainy season, and so it's just about you. To, you try to figure out roughly where how old you are, and for me, I picked my favorite dates. I picked my favorite month and the year because um, that's a that's a reality. I remember one time. So we don't celebrate birthdays, neither myself or my wife celebrates, but our children does celebrate birthdays. And it's very interesting, I was traveling in the US one time and we were, we were just checking in in the airport and I had my passport and so I'd open it. And then a colleague from TNC, the National Conservancy, who was taking me around, tapped on my back and said, Tom, happy birthday. And I looked back at, the, at her and said, What? No, no, I'm reading from your passport. Ah, I said, No, forget about this. This is, this is just, <laughs> I don't know when I was born. And so that's the that's reality for us. We don't get to know when you're born.
0: Do you feel lucky, Tom, that I know when you were about five or six, your father came home one evening and offered you a very important choice about working with the cattle looking after the herd or going to school. Do you feel blessed that your older brother didn't take the school option and that you were able to have the education that so many people within your tribe weren't able to have?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting because that evening, there was a government meeting a day before, and the government officials really pushed the elders in a meeting that, please, we want you to send children to school. And by that time, when they say send children to school, it was largely boys. Girls were not in the picture. And so I remember we were six of us who were sent to school uh, later. But that particular evening, when the cattle came home and my father was taking a cup of tea, from a kettle, and he called the two of us. It was my elder brother, was senior, and then myself, I was a like, young, small boy. And when he talked to the two of us and said, "I would like one of you to go to school because we've been asked by government to," and I remember my elder brother spitting on the ground like something you you don't like. He said, "No, Dad, me I want to go to school." As so I'm not sure whether I I sympathized with my father because I just said, and I was small, really, without clothes, you know, during our, our times. Boys could go to probably six, seven years without clothes. Really? Um, and so I didn't have clothes then. I was still young, and so I told my father, I'll "Take the option left, which is going to school." I asked my brother, my elder brother, would decline to go to school. Whether he regrets that he, he never picked the choice because he could have said yes. Then I would have. I could not have gone to school myself. And he said. It was not his sort of passion, but you know we still continue. We still live together with my brothers right now. My elder brother and others is married, and uh, we've continued supporting to support each other and live together.
0: Not only did you go to school, you ended up going to the University of Nairobi. You've got a bachelor's degree in social work, a master's degree in project planning and management, and an MBA in strategic management. And you are putting all of that to such great use, Tom. Just paint a picture for us of the community conservancies and, uh, and what somebody would see if they went to a community conservancy. How do they all pull together? Because it's hard for us to imagine. I suppose you, you know what Britain's like. You've been to the UK. It's so very different to your beautiful country. So just describe what a conservancy's like and how they, how they work.
1: The community conservancy movement in Kenya is really gaining momentum. Close to about 200 conservancies in this country right now. And the Northern Regional Trust model is communal conservancies. A certain conservancy covers a certain geographic area. The communities in Northern Kenya still live together. So we live this extended family still. And by doing so, everybody gets to know each other. And so community conservancies, they have a local elected boards of elders, youth and women who manage or govern the conservancy. And the board of each conservancy, employ their own local staff as scouts who do wildlife monitoring. They employ a ranch land coordinator, if they're looking at, into restoration, regeneration of their ranch lands, and they have their other staff. They have their conservancy manager from that community. And so every community conservancy geographically knows, most of a number of them now have a, a land tenure, a title for their land. And so the conservancy enables them to plan for their different land uses, grazing areas, wet season uh, grazing areas, you know, dry season grazing areas, settlement areas, where they put schools, where they want to water, the key wildlife also areas, they, they also map potentially tourism areas. And so everything gets to fall in the right place. And the awareness is done in such a way that in every village, there's a structure. Where I come from, I was the first to go to school in the entire Westgate Community Conservancy. And currently, we've got about 400 students going to school, and they're all getting scholarships from their conservancy. And so conservancy generate revenue. They also get funding from the government. They get funding from Tusk. And many other partners. Each conservancy is able to run their own budgets, annual budgets. And they're really investing. They're creating jobs for their communities. They're doing education support. And they're doing a lot of businesses, supporting women, enterprises, uh, Bidworks, among others. And so when the benefits start flowing, the communities really appreciate that. And whether it's a species management, they know their wildlife corridors, they know their water points, and it has to be managed properly. And so that's how the community conservancies work in Northern Kenya. Under the Northern Regional Trust, we currently have a membership of 43 community conservancies and we've got about 23 more applications on the pipeline.
0: I think people can see the difference you're making and probably want to be part of that. I'm here, as you know, courtesy of 91, who co-created the, the lovely awards that you were part of 10 years ago when you were a pioneer. And also we're with the CEO of Tusk here, the man who founded it on his own 30 years ago. How important is it, that relationship for you with Tusk? You share headquarters here, for example, but how closely do you work and how well do you work together?
1: The Northern Regiland Trust has such a real partnership with Tusk Trust. Tusk Trust has been part of the journey, including the formation of Northern Regiland Trust. And uh, Task Trust is such a trusted partner for us. They have been with us since we started 2004 and are still with us. And they have continued to support us financially and also technically because we reach out to them. And so uh, Task has been such a, a great partner to Northern Regional Trust, great partner to Lea Wildlife well Conservancy, such a great partner for uh, Community Conservancy in Northern Kenya and Coastal Kenya. You know, getting such a partnership, a partner that started with us and are still with us. You can imagine, you know, uh, for example, the, the Lower Marathon, they do every year. The funds that they raise from this marathon, a percentage, a good percentage really comes to NRT. to It's given back to Northern Regiland Trust and we allocate to the community conservancies in Northern Kenya. So they raise a lot of funds for us. Um, funds that are raised through the marathon comes back to Northern Regiland Trust as well and it goes straight to these communities to support water, to support women, to support education. Uh, It's just been such a trusted uh, partner for us. And Shirley Mayu has been such a a good leader, you know, very warm, very friendly and simple, down to earth. And I think the the whole of uh, Task Trust are just such a very humble organization to work with. The other thing I like about it, uh, about Task, is I like normally when they call all the implementing partners in Africa. And we meet, we share lessons, we share experiences, what's working, what's not working. And so uh partners in uh, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, South Africa, Namibia, everywhere, we, we meet uh, through this through Task Trust and we're able to share lessons, what's working, what's not working, which is great, you know. So even us as implementing partners, we, we become like a family, you know. Uh, we got friends. And I reckon, again, these awards are quite inspirational for sure. It motivates. When I, when I won the award, I was a junior officer in this organization. But the passion that emanated also from those awards, the inspiration, have seen me stay on with the organization and now to become a CEO of the Northern Regional Trust.
0: And 91 have a team running the marathon and it's been wonderful to be with them as they go to schools and they go to conservancies and they see firsthand where the funds that they raise are being spent. That's really important, isn't it?
1: It is so important to have 91 team participate in this year's marathon. I'm so glad that they're able to go to see the schools, to see the children, to meet with the women who benefits from this support and having a such a partnership with 91 means a lot to us in northern Kenya, including Task.
0: You've mentioned women a few times. In the past, what's prevented women in northern and coastal Kenya from being as involved as, as the men, from becoming leaders and, and from making a difference? Because I know now there are new opportunities out there for women, but what's held them back in the past, do you think?
1: Northern Kenya communities are generally male dominated and that's typical for pastoralist communities. And so women typically lack voice, uh, including our mothers and sisters. And so it has taken a lot of effort through the conservancies to increase the voice of women and also ensure that they tap on opportunities and ensuring that women take into leadership positions in the earlier days, we could hardly get a single woman to be elected into the conservancy boards. And we used to pursue what we call co option because they cannot be elected. Currently, I think 25% of board members in almost all the conservancies are women. And so we have taken a deliberate initiative to start what we call conservancies women caucus. Women from various conservancies coming together and sharing experiences. Uh, last month, we had a team of women from Northern Kenya go all the way to the coast and meet with the marine communities, marine women and shared experiences. So we are getting the voice. We are also training women right now on leadership and management program tailored to get them the voice. So there are a lot of programs currently that are focused around women. A mangrove restoration in the coast is led by women. Ocean plastic is also being led by women because they make a lot of other artifacts out of them. Fish farming, like octopus, octopus farming, is led by women. It's very interesting. They do auction of octopus certain times uh, after every two three months. The highest bidder, you know, takes the catch for the day, and women make money here in the North BidWorks program. It's a big hit now, we've got over 1,400 women making bids for international market. And currently we also have savings and credit cooperatives and it's largely women and youth. And so there's a lot we're doing deliberately to improve the voice of our women, our local women, despite the fact that they haven't gone to school, but they're able to provide leadership.
0: Things have definitely changed for the better, Tom. What are your hopes for the future here for conservation and indeed as, as we all have to face up and tackle climate change for our planet and, and to help preserve the natural world?
1: My hope for the future is that conservation is going to be more about people. My hope for the future is a sustainable and resilient livelihoods for our communities. My hope for the future is securing the future of African Elephants.
0: And why elephants in particular?
1: The African elephants are quite iconic. And we got in Africa this attachment for these elephants. They clear the ways for you, and they they are very beautiful uh, within our landscape. Uh, And we'd love to see these elephants uh, thrive in Africa, in the wild Africa.
0: Fantastic. I was lucky enough to be very close to a bull elephant this morning which was quite something really humbling and a very magical moment. Tom thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I leave you as I knew I would feeling inspired and in awe of the work that you do here and I hope I'll get a chance to meet you again. I have a funny feeling that I will meet you again because I've fallen in love with Africa and fallen in love with Kenya. And so I'm, I'm determined to come back and to carry on trying to help Tusk and support 91 with their awards as well. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to conservationist Tom Lalampa, CEO of the Rangelands Trust and winner of the first Tusk Award for Conservancy in Africa 10 years ago, which he received from the charity's royal patron, Prince William. Thanks to Tom for making me so welcome at the Rangelands Trust, to 91 for making this trip possible, and to Tusk for the 30 years they've spent protecting wildlife, supporting communities and schools, and helping protect our natural world. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, on Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week, uh, not in this beautiful climate, but with another great guest. Join me then. <laughs>